Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. If you've been watching The Scuttlebutt this season, you may have seen the episode that highlighted the Office of Veterans Programs at Penn State University. Coming on the program today is an alumni of Penn State. Her name is Rachel Nostrand. She is a five and a half year Marine Corps veteran who left the service and decided to become an aspiring war correspondent. Uh, she writes for MilitaryTimes.com. She also wrote an article for New York Magazine titled The Rescuer. This is about her recent trip into Ukraine, uh, which I highly recommend and is going to be here, a link in the description for you to click on and read. Uh, Rachel goes into her family history, which is very extensive in the military, why she decided to join the Marine Corps, and what I think is like the three lives that she lived while serving. Um, she is uh, driven and is a go-getter, uh, and I think you'll find out why. Her story is incredible. I hope that you enjoy our conversation with Rachel, and if this is your first time joining the Scuttlebutt, please check out our other episodes, which are available across all podcast platforms, or you can watch us on YouTube. Um, you can check us out on veteransbreakfastclub.org, and on YouTube, please like, share, subscribe, and, and ring the bell here so that you're the first to know when we release new episodes. If you also have any comments or questions, thoughts about the Scuttlebutt, or ideas for future episodes, you can email me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Thank you so much for joining the episode today, and I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Rachel Nostrand. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps for five and a half years. I enlisted right out of high school in 2013, and then I got out, was medically separated in December of 2018. So like I was actually six months past the end of my original contract. I served as a Middle Eastern cryptologic linguist, so I spoke Levantine Iraqi in modern standard Arabic and did signals intel, um, deployed once to uh, North Africa and the Middle East. And then I last year finished up my undergrad at Penn State and now I write for Military Times and Defense News. Awesome. Uh, Rachel, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. You and I have been and chatting back and forth through email and, uh, you know, our, one of our previous episodes, we had uh, Penn State, the Office of Veterans Programs on, but uh, let's start uh, back in 2013. Okay. You decide to go Marine Corps. Now, that's that's hardcore, uh, yeah. definitely. Um, why did you decide that? Um, well, we actually have to go slightly farther back than 2013. I So my entire family uh, is in the military or has been, and, mm -hmm. and everybody is an officer except for me. Oh boy. So, yeah. Um, my mom was an army signals intelligence officer for 27 years. My wow. dad was in the Navy as a logistics uh, or supply officer uh, for 20, yeah, 20 flat. My stepdad was an Air Force officer in intelligence for 22, I think. And my sister and my brother-in-law are both um, army field artillery officers right now. Wow. So run it back to 2012 and I'm a junior in high school. I absolutely did not want to enlist. I did not want to join the military at all. I kind of hated the military because this was peak Afghan years. Um, and my mom and my stepdad who I lived with had been gone for pretty much the past like four or five years. Um, and I kind of blamed the military for that a little bit. So I was like on my own a lot didn't want to enlist, just wanted to go to college, but I was like, like a lot of military children, I think, um, 
kind of suffering from like a little bit of abandonment issues. And so I was acting out and I got in trouble and I got caught shoplifting and I was like, wow, I suck like as a person. Oh. <laughs> so like the next day, um, you know, after my parents sat down and were like, um, you're grounded forever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> forever, no, till eternity. Yeah. Um, I was like, I think I'm going to postpone going to college. I need to straighten myself out. And I walked into the recruiter's office. It was the army. Mm-hmm. And I dept in with the army actually for army diver, which I didn't want. Um, but that's what they gave me. And I was like, no, I really want Intel. Mm-hmm. I tried to find the air force recruiters and they were never in their office shocker (laughs) uh the navy even though like even though i had a pretty decent asvab score and everything we're like oh we don't really need you and then i went to the marine corps recruiters and they were like just come to one pt with us it's just try it out we know you're with the army already it's okay so i went to the marine corps recruiters i went to pt with them and i was like no you guys are my people i will absolutely switch over it was just yeah. something about the the sense of family that comes even in the depth with the Marine Corps that I was like, yeah, these are my people. Um, it's very much a sub a subculture of the military, which is its it own is. culture to begin with. Yeah, we're a little culty in the Marine Corps, which like really checks because I went to Penn State, which is also known for being, <laughs> being kind of the same way. Um, but yeah, so I, I switched over over from army depth to marine corps depth before my senior year of high school had even started i was still mm-hmm. 17 um my parents had to sign the little waiver and everything which was an interesting conversation with both of them oh you have um, to expand on that so i mean they're both military and yeah w- one i guess why would why was it maybe that was a little bit tough but was it because of marine corps or or why yeah um yeah. to be brutally honest um my mom I think my dad was just grateful I was making it out of high school. <laughs> he was like, all right. He's like, well, it's kind of dangerous. And I was like, yeah, I got that. And then, so he signed the papers, but my mom, my mom keeping it real, like she always does. was just like, um, Rachel, you know, there aren't that many female Marines. Um, if you join the Marine Corps, you have to be aware of the fact that you will probably be sexually assaulted. And at 17, of course, you're just like, no, nah, it won't happen to me um like ah, you don't know what you're talking about like I'm friends with all these guys um so she she had that conversation with me and I didn't really believe her um and of course I got in the Marine Corps and like uh I understand what she's talking about now um and yeah she's she had that conversation with me at a time but I'm pretty stubborn and so I was dead set on doing it and I was like this is what I want to do I have to do this I can't I can't go to college the way I am right now um so my parents signed everything. I went depth in and then after graduating high school, I think it was like three or four weeks later, I went off to boot camp. So, so you weren't in like ROTC or anything in high school. You kind of, yeah, it just very <laughs> no, like- No, absolutely not. Um, mm-hmm. Now I'm from Virginia Beach, Virginia. And we're very much like a relaxed, like kind of surfer community, like a little beach community. I totally um, understand because I, I have a uh, family that lives down there. So I spend a lot of time down in Virginia beach, the jets flying over and as yes. uh, you know, the Navy culture there is ingrained in that community. That's a huge base Oceana. Um, so yeah, I, I know also have very like well. 
the SEAL base is down there, down at Damn Neck and Little Creek. Um, so it's Marine Corps Intel School, it's there as well. Um, so we have a lot of military around, but for some reason, for like locals, that doesn't really, it, it's almost like it um, numbs us to the military because we're so used to like the jet noise and stuff, which is why I don't understand when people complain about it because I'm like, it's very normal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I live up here in Pittsburgh now, and you know, we might see a C-17. We have an Air Force Reserve base uh, close by with the Pittsburgh International Airport. They're they're right beside each other. Um, we don't hear jets. If if a, if an F-18 came screeching overhead here, at my time in Virginia Beach, I'd be like, oh, interesting. What's it doing in Pittsburgh? But I'm sure every other civilian would be like, what is going on? The world is ending. Um, but down there, it's like, what? Every hour you hear them flying overhead. Yeah, I, uh, I actually started writing for Vermont newspaper last summer, mm -hmm. and they have jets here as well um, with the Vermont, Vermont Air National Guard, and it's like this big thing. They all hate it. They hate the fact that they're at uh, the Burlington National Airport, and um, <laughs> every like every couple of months, somebody will have like an article come up about people complaining about jet noise and how it's really distracting for their kids and it's right. like hurting their heads and everything. I'm just like, wow, is this actually a thing? <laughs> I think going to concerts probably is hurting their head more than anything that a oh, jet noise is going to make. Nobody's burning afterburners or going supersonic above your house. Um, <laughs> so uh, something I'm interested in because, you know, there aren't that many uh, women Marine Corps veterans. Um, so it's great to be able to talk to one, uh, a part of the post 9-11 generation. Um, do you, do you think it was important for your mom to have that conversation with you to start? Do you feel like that maybe grounded you a bit in like, okay, what am I about to step into? Yes, but I didn't, I was 17. So mm -hmm. I didn't take her seriously at the time. And, you know, me too, wasn't a thing yet. So mm -hmm. sexual assault and harassment wasn't really talked about at the time. Um, and my mom you know, she tried to tell me, but it's, it's just a totally different beast that I feel like recruiters are the ones who are responsible for getting you ready for yeah. recruiters and drill instructors. Um, you know, yeah, I, I'm glad she had the conversation with me. I wish I had paid attention. I feel like if I was going in now, she had that conversation with me. I would pay more attention just because of the social climate that we have. But at the time, Mm -hmm. yeah um and what was it like going into basic like I, I imagine that growing up with two parents in the military was hard enough was the, was the marine corps easier yeah uh three parents technically three three stepdad. yes right yeah my stepdad's been a part of my life since well actually 9-11 that's when my mom remarried after that um yeah Boot camp was interesting. Uh, so just real quick, boot camp, Marine Corps, basic, Army. Um, Thank you. That's good. Yeah. It's good for Both my civilian mind to know. So yeah. boot camp, Marine Corps, basic training is Army. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, so boot camp, boot camp was interesting. Uh, I, of course, am very used <laughs> to like getting yelled at and stuff like with my parents. <laughs> Um, did you always have all... to what is it square your sheets is that what you did you always no thank you no, I think I think with me my parents gave up keeping my room <laughs> clean my sister I, by the time I went to boot camp my sister was in Penn State ROTC mm -hmm. um, so with her it was much easier for them and 
you know, it was a world they understood because she was going officer. My mom was an army officer. Like it was all something that they're familiar with. For me, it was just like, you know, after I stepped in and I would, if I did something wrong or if I gave my parents a lip or something, my stepdad, especially who had been in Afghanistan almost nonstop at this point for a while. And he was in Sangin with, um, it was like one five or three five for Marines. Um, you know, he would get in my face and like yell at me and he would be like, you want to be a Marine? Like you can't even, and then insert thing that I had failed to do, like do the dishes or like, right. <laughs> like I think at one point um, we were like re, um, we were laying bricks for the patio in our yard <laughs> and I was complaining about it because like, I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Who does? I, Teenager, yeah. you don't want to lay bricks. Yeah, I was like, I just want to go. I was playing sports at the time. And I'm sure I said something along the lines of like, I just want to go play sand soccer with my friends. Or I just want to go play volleyball. Um, and my dad, my stepdad would get in my face and just like yell at me. Um, and it would be like, it would be like drill instructor yelling. Like there would be like spittle coming out. Um, so you didn't have to drop and give him 20 or anything. No, I, I used to laugh actually when he like, I'm not one of those people who's dumb enough to be like, yeah, I would punch a drill instructor in the face. I would laugh um, when my parents did it because I was like, this is ridiculous. There's nothing, nothing is like this. Yeah. No, boot camp actually is like that. They actually do just get in your face and spit on you and like yell at you and insult you. Um, boot camp was interesting though. I was really, I was really in shape and um, I was that recruit that would volunteer to do IT or intensive mm-hmm. training when like other recruits were getting targeted. And even though a couple of them follow me on like Instagram or we're Facebook friends now, shout out if you guys listen to this. Um, I'm pretty sure they hated me. Because <laughs> 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 um, I wasn't like super scared of them. I was like, I'm five seven, like 150 something pounds. I'm I'm like slightly on the larger side for women. Um and I wasn't super scared of them. There were like two drone instructors that kind of freaked me out. And other than that, bootcamp, bootcamp was fun. Once you get past the like emotional Shock. trauma yeah. <laughs> of like not sleeping and getting yelled at. And um, I had really short hair. Then it was like up to my chin. Yeah. And they used to call me recruit hair. And one of my drone instructors would leave pictures of pixie cuts on my bed as like a threat to like cut the rest of my hair off because they hated my hair yeah um and they still call me recruit hair on facebook like uh, i think that's once you once you get the nickname it kind of sticks with you <laughs> for life really it's like it's not something that just sort of ends you know once you once you get out of uh once you get out of a boot camp yeah like when i write a really good article or something <laughs> one of my drill instructors i think she's a gunnery sergeant now gunnery sergeant hardy she'll be a she'll comment something she'll be like hair and then she'll say something nice um but <laughs> boot camp was fun it's uh I was sometimes I wish I could go back because you kind of go into autopilot while mm-hmm. you're there and so honestly it's, it's a very simple time if you can kind of just like tune things out totally and you know we've had a lot of women come on to the BBC talk about their their experiences a lot of them say like I felt like I had to work harder than the males that were in with me to, to stand weird. out What's that? Yeah, that came later. You know, okay. in 2013, bootcamp wasn't um, bootcamp wasn't integrated gender-wise, so I was only with women. Mm-hmm. Um, we would see the men every now and again, but 
you know, not really. Um, MCT, like I remember this Marine combat training, it's what you do after boot camp if you're not infantry. Um, they go to ITV. And um, I remember it was the first night of MCT and uh, gosh, I almost, I think his name was Sergeant Crochet. I don't know, this is, it was a while ago. Um, he just kind of pointed at me and he was like, you're gonna be a squad leader. And so then I was a squad leader, but of course we're with all of these like male Marines at this point, it's our first time. Mm -hmm. We're all like very nervous. Oh my God, what's gonna happen? We're still kind of like recruit status because uh, we've only had 10 days of leave. So some people are still talking in third person. Um, <laughs> and that was hard because you wanna be, you, you wanna be a best, you're a Marine, you're very competitive. Mm -hmm. um, most of us are natural leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, as a woman, you're kind of just like, I need to be seen as something other than, excuse my language, but at boot camp, they tell you you're either going to be seen as a bitch or a slut, and you have to choose which one you're going to be. Wow. Um, and you don't want that. You don't want that for yourself. Right. So it's, yeah, it's hard because you're cognizant of that and you're mm -hmm. aware of the stories that male drill instructors tell their recruits about female Marines and mm -hmm. um at the end of the day, you just want to be a Marine like anyone else. And you just want to, um, I'm going to say this and it sounds very weird. You just want to be loved like all the other Marines mm -hmm. because male Marines have this really intense bond with each other and they love each other, even if they hate one another. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the day, female Marines, like that's all we want. We just want that too. We want to be sisters. It's certainly, we, we talked about it being sort of a, a subculture, but certainly like the, the way that you find the group whenever you join the Marines and, and gain trust from everyone um, is, is, is difficult uh, as everybody is starting to, to integrate with each other. Everybody's from different areas of the country. You kind of don't know. You're, you're, you're also just sort of dealing with yourself at 19, trying to like find your way through this. Did you feel like you came into the Marine Corps prepared to be a leader? Do you think it, or do you think the Marine Corps sort of brought that out of you? Um, I trying to think of how to say this while well, not tending. Um, humbly, um, I've always been somewhat of a natural leader, and that's probably because I have officer parents, mm -hmm. and they've always raised me to lead. Um, so I've always been like sports captain, or I was my senior class vice president. Like I've president of the chess club. <laughs> Oh, see, I'm a big, I love playing yeah. chess. If you play chess, let's play. I love playing on chess.com. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had a mock trial, like model UN, all of that. And, mm -hmm. you know, you get into the military and it's a lot different because they drill into you that like lives are on the line all the time and all of this. And there's a lot of pressure, but you're also fresh out of high school and you're still a child. Um, right. So, you know, I would say that I came in as a leader, but it wasn't, I was a decent leader while I was in MOS school. Mm -hmm. um, I'm probably being hard on myself, but there are a lot of things I didn't take seriously. Um, like uniform inspections, I really didn't care about that. Um, but I also was going through a lot personally at the time. Um, and that reflected. And so 
I would say my leadership capability fell away until I got my mental health back under check, which isn't, hasn't been until I got out of the Marine Corps. Right. <laughs> but um, from the side, outside of ability, I would say there have always been times um, where I've tried to lead just to be helpful and to take care of others. And that's had to suffice um, because when you don't have your mental health um, under control, which I could talk about more if you'd like, um, but you can't be a good leader if you're not doing okay yourself. And I wasn't for almost my entire Marine Corps career just because of some things that happened, so. Uh, it's up to you if you'd like to dive into that, but uh, I guess in the in the idea of women who may listen to this podcast and say, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to be good at this, or I, am I secure enough in myself to join the Marine Corps? Do I believe in myself? You know, without necessarily going to specifics, would you like to talk a bit about how you were able to work through those things and still be able to compete and, you know, rise to the challenge of being a Marine? Yeah. Um... Okay, so, you know, if you're a woman and you're going into a Marine Corps recruiter's office in the first place, you can do it. Um, because that's the hardest step is even just putting into your head that you can do this. Um, and it's, uh, so I just wanna, anyone that's listening to this, that's like in the depth or something or is thinking about it, um, if you're even considering it, you can do it. Um, anyone really can. The best part about the Marine Corps is that on some level, we all have this really like intense like heart. Um, it's like willpower because you have to in order to get through boot camp and in order to sign your name away on like a dotted line and everything. Um, and for women, especially if you're thinking about it, you know, you may not feel like you're physically strong enough or something or fast enough, um, but you can get there it's the spirit it's the personality of a person the character that you can't necessarily you can't necessarily change um so if you have that anyways you're going to be okay um and i think for female marines too what you'll learn is like it's getting better um with time but you know female marines we do have each other's backs um a lot of us were raised into the Marine Corps with this mindset of, well, there's so few of us, only one of us can succeed at once. And it was very cutthroat, but that's getting better. Um, and if you can remember to not be cutthroat <laughs> and that more than one of you can succeed at the same time, it's it's gonna be great, it's gonna be okay. I get so. chills with that. that. That's the type of thing that you think like, you know, would you have said that to yourself 19 going into the Marine Corps. I would have told myself to be a lot nicer to, um, yeah, I would have told 17, 18 year old Rachel to be a lot nicer to other female Marines. Um, I really loved my other female Marines, but I was very hard on them mm -hmm. uh, in the ways that shouldn't matter at all. Like I definitely was somebody who let rumors get into my head, mm -hmm. um, probably because a lot were spread about me as well. And it's just, it permeates everything. Um, but yeah, it's tough. I would it's have tough wanted high somebody school, to tell this to me. <laughs> yeah. It was like in high school, like I remember, you know, you, you hear rumors about you and it, it really is, it's tough. Marine Corps is, uh, that's, that's such a competitive atmosphere yeah. and, and trying to stand out within that, 
within that core. And then, you know, hearing these things, I can only imagine how difficult that must be to sort of work through uh, while you're trying to excel. And I would, I would also say that not just for, for women Marines, but, you know, for everybody, um, it's not just trying to stand out. It's about trying to just survive. Mm-hmm. Um, is very mentally challenging being in the military because uh, this is something you notice when you get out too. They stress you out about things that have absolutely no importance whatsoever to the point where everything stresses you out. Everything feels like a big deal. Being one minute late to work or, um, you know, having like a flyaway on your uniform or something or your hair being out of like just being not perfect every day you know, none of that actually matters. And when it push comes to shove, when you're doing your job in the military, it doesn't matter either, as long as you are like following the protocols that are set in place to keep you alive and to keep your other like Marines and service members alive, the rest of it doesn't matter, but they don't tell you that. They stress you out about everything and you're all at like DEFCON level five stress wise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they also, at least, you know, when I was in, I'm sure this is still the same way. Uh, you're kind of just like a number. Um, mm. And that gets to you after a while. That really does. Right. Um, let's jump forward into your deployments. Uh, mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, what your MOS, and I'm getting that yeah. right. Is it MOS in, in Marine Corps? Yeah. Great. Yep. Uh, you mentioned what your MOS was in your intro, uh, but it sounded very confusing to my civilian <laughs> ears. So I thought we would talk a bit about why you chose to do that and how you were trained for it. Okay, yeah. So I was a Middle Eastern cryptologic linguist. Um, at the time, it was a 2671. Now, I think it's been reclassed as 2641. So just cryptologic linguists, and your language becomes a BMOS. Um, so I actually stepped in on an open contract for Intel. I didn't care which Intel field I got. I just wanted the Intel. And I was at bootcamp and I had passed the D-Lab, that's the Defense Language Aptitude Battery Test, um, which kind of just gauges whether or not you're gonna be good at learning languages. And I passed enough to get into like a Cat 4 language, which is the highest. It's um, Arabic, I think Korean, Chinese, Japanese, um, and maybe Posh too, although that might be a Cat 3, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, I. So not a lot of people make, especially not in the Marine Corps, we're always hurting for linguists. Um, not a lot of people pass the D-Lab. So I got pulled into some mass science office boot camp. We were like a month in and they were just like, sign this. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like a new contract. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> Can I talk to somebody first or do you yeah. have to sign now? <laughs> I, I did use that as an excuse to call my mom from boot camp because she, was, she had told me that this might happen. Um, because she also went to the Defense Language Institute, which is where all military linguists go. Um, she went to learn Spanish. Um, and she was like, yes, take this job, Rachel. Um, this will set you up for life uh, skill-wise. Like, absolutely, you will love this. Take it. So I signed it. I was like, all right. Um, I get out of MCT. And I go to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, a beautiful place. Uh, I really miss it. I wish I had taken more advantage of it while I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, 16 months straight of eight hours a day learning Arabic. And I was 11. Wow. So I 11 is the dialect of Arabic that is spoken in Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then at the same time, for Levantine linguists, you learn to read modern standard Arabic, um, which is its own separate, not language, but kind of, um, but classification, a DLI. So we have, we have linguists in the military who are just modern standard Arabic, um, but Levantine does both. So I did that. Um, and then you go to San Angelo, Texas to learn the signals intelligence side of your job because uh, it's cryptologic linguist. So it's all of this gear that um, I'm trying to think of what I'm allowed to say. It's- <laughs> Oh, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure I was like, there, there yeah. might be some top secret stuff here, but yeah. Yeah, so don't worry, I'll, I'll dumb it down classification wise. So basically it's a bunch of communications collections gear that mm -hmm. you use. And then whatever you collect, you use your language to translate and interpret. Um, so that was my job. That's about another six months to do. There's a little bit of linguist, linguistic training that you do while you're there, but then also the signals intelligence part of your training happens there. And then I got stationed in Camp Pendleton, California. I was at first radio battalion. Um, first rad bin or sad bin if you ask rad binners that's what we call it is sad bin because um, it's not a very happy place no no <laughs> we're all like very clinically depressed it's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah um i did that and i deployed on the 15th view as um the linguist analyst for an lavew so electronic warfare team mm -hmm. but while i was um, a part of that, it didn't look like my team was going anywhere because LEVs really haven't gone anywhere in like a while, um, conflict-wise, at least not from Muse. And so I actually got pulled over to work with First Recon, who were also on the deployment. And I was, they kind of would use me as like a, like a legitimate translator, which is not part of my training. <laughs> um, it turns out a lot in the military. It's like, here, we're going to train you to do this, and but you're going to do this. Yeah, <laughs> It was wild. Like at one point, one of the like workups for the deployment, they just handed me a megaphone and they were like, all right, we need you to say this. And I was like, oh, this isn't what I'm trying to do. Like, what did you freak? Did you like do yeah. it? You just like, you have to. I did. It's, um, I still find it incredibly ironic that I was a military linguist because growing up, I had a speech impediment for like six or seven years. Like I was in speech therapy for that long. Um, wow. So the fact that I was a linguist and that they gave me Arabic of all things, like I can't roll my R's, for example, I would be absolutely hopeless in Spanish. And then they, they gave me Arabic. And I was like, this is a cruel twist of fate. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I was going to ask if there was, if you sort of had like a past history or proclivity for, for just learning different languages or had you learned anything prior? No. You just, yeah. Um, I mean, I speak, I speak a little bit of French and German just because, you know, my mom got sent over into Germany post 9-11 and mm -hmm. So I partially grew up in Stuttgart, Germany. Yeah, so yeah. I speak a little bit of German, um, just conversationally. And I've taken French pretty much since like middle school or something. Um, mm -hmm. And then post-Marine Corps, I'm getting off track. But like for like a month or two, I went to university randomly in France. And I just sat and studied for like a oh, little bit. Oh, fun. Yeah. Very cool. Um, but yeah, being a linguist on deployment was interesting. And then I went from being a translator for recon for a little bit on ship, uh, doing like VBSS missions, which are like ship raids at sea, to um, I got pulled over again, <laughs> too, because I also, 
I was also proficient in Iraqi. I did a conversion course at San Diego State. Mm -hmm. so it was like two months and they were like, okay, we'll take you from modern standard Arabic to Iraqi, um, which was hard because I'm a Levantine linguist and all mm -hmm. of the other linguists in class were modern standard. So I had to like really catch up. It was, it was a lot. Um, that first deployment, you say deployment, where did you go? Yeah, that was my only deployment. We went okay. to the Middle East and North Africa. Okay. So we first stopped. I mean, we have all the little fun stops along the way, like uh, like Hawaii, and we went to Vietnam and Thailand. And then after Thailand, yeah, after Thailand, we went to Djibouti, uh, Camp Lemonye, which is a naval base, and still to this day, I will argue, has the best chow hall I've ever run at. <laughs> hear that listeners anybody that listens in if you have a better chow hall yeah let send me a message. Know. yeah yeah because they have a uh, belgian waffle mondays i can't blame me at least while i was there my nice. little marine me was like what is this <laughs> <laughs> um and then from lemonier i got pulled over to the sp magtaf actually which is a different kind of deployment for marines mm -hmm. so i went from a MU, a Marine Expeditionary Unit, to the SP MAGTAF, which is the Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force. And I went over there with 1-5, um, which is an infantry battalion, as part of a signal support team. So I was a linguist analyst for them. And uh, we were in Kuwait. And then I got, let me back up. When I got attached to 1-5, they were with the MU. And then they went to Kuwait. Um, some things were popping off in Syria at the time and they were thinking that they might be going there. Okay. Um, but then we were in Camp Bering, just kind of sitting in like tent city there. And one five was clearly not going to be going forward anymore. But the SPM ACTAF was like, yes, we need a signal support team. We'll take you guys. Um, so they did. They just took my signal support team from the Mew. <laughs> And from 1-5, who had taken us from our various ships on the Mew, um, and we went to Jabber in Kuwait, and um, which is much smaller than Bering. And I sat there for a couple months and did some linguisty things in like a little shipping container uh, in the middle of nowhere. And we got to run um, like a handful of air missions going into certain places like Iraq and Syria and Jordan, I think as well. Um, and yeah, then the rest of my deployment was just um, your average sitting in a room with no windows and listening. listening. It's what I always kind of think of the linguists are always sitting there just in the dark room, listening on things, but uh, being deployed, was that it? <laughs> yeah. Was being deployed its own sort of culture shock? Like, were you excited to be deployed? You I know? was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I actually broke my hip while I was in MOS school and I didn't know I broke my hip mm -hmm. and nobody believed me, which is a whole nother tangent you can go off on, on military medicine and how they treat female service members. Um, and it took a year for them <laughs> to give me an MRI. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, hey, your hip's broken. How did you break your hip? Um, I think it was an overuse injury at the time. Okay. So this... We're at 2014, I'm in MMLS school, I'm learning Arabic and um, the Marine Corps is testing out whether or not they wanna allow women into recon and infantry units. And um, being signals intelligence, we have something called radio recon, which is where they send signals intelligence Marines into recon. Um, they train you up and then you 
join something called like a radio reconnaissance team. Um, it's essentially where they drop signal support teams into the middle of nowhere in really dangerous places and you do your signal thing. You just, you have the recon background so they can drop you random places. Um, that's my very quick Sparknotes version of what that is. I'm sure there's more to it. Um, and the master guns at the time, you know, I was captain of the female run team on base and, um, you know, as a squad leader and everything, and I was very in shape. I was running like a half marathon every Friday just for fun. And you like, see my trail. face, anybody who's listening or watching on YouTube, you see my, I, 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 on a whim as a side story, I, on a whim decided to run a half marathon. Cause I was like, okay, I've done some five K's. I'll go run the half marathon. That almost killed me. This is just like one that I got about maybe nine miles in and my leg cramped up and the 90 year old women were burning past me in that last like quarter of that thing. But that's tough to be able to do that every, would you say once a week you were doing that? Yeah, every Friday, a group of the Marines and I, um, from my platoon, we would go down and Monterey, California is a very beautiful place. Mm -hmm. So it's a great running place. Big Sur is right there. So we would go and we would run after class on Friday, let off a little steam. The older Marines would then go drink afterwards and the rest of us would go back to the barracks. Yeah. Um, but we like started off just like running your basic like three, five miles. And then the people in the group uh, realized that all of us could kind of run more. And so we just kept going up until we were hitting like 10, 11, 12, 13 miles every Friday, mm -hmm. just because. Um, That's incredible. Yeah, it was great. Um, so the master guns there, master gunnery sergeant Reeves. Um, I don't even know where he is anymore, but if he's listening, hi. Uh, <laughs> he he thought I stood a chance of making it through basic reconnaissance course, and so I was doing these little recon prep PTs that he was running for people, and you know I was doing my normal squad PT, and I was doing female run team, and I was doing like our detachment volleyball teams and soccer and flag football. And I wasn't stretching because I was 19 and I thought I was invincible. Mm. And then one day I was just walking back from class and I had sheared through all of the cartilage in my hip on the right side. Just, I just like fell over. Um, and I was really confused what happened because it hurt so bad. And then I stood up, I was like, you're okay, you're okay. And then a couple of minutes later, I was like, I'm okay. But like, I didn't feel anything. Um, and, you know, then I found out later that, again, I shared through all the cartilage in my hip, and I hadn't realized it. Um, and, yeah, so I had had hip surgery, and fast forward, and we're now in 2016, 2017. My contract was supposed to be up in July of 2018, and I was, like, coming from the family that I come from, I was like, I have to deploy. Like, I, I have to. I can't just sit here. Mm -hmm. We work missions from first radio battalion um, in California that are real-time missions and everything. So I was doing my job, but for some reason, the mentality is if you don't deploy, you're like less than, um, yeah, yeah. and I was like, I have to. And so I pulled myself off of limited duty. I went to one of my female staff sergeants, she might've been a gunny at the time. Um, and I was like, they were considering pulling over another linguist. Um, for the 15th Mew, who he was only proficient in modern standard Arabic. And I went up to her and Staff Sergeant Levy. And I was like, Staff Sergeant Levy, 
I'm proficient in Levantine and Iraqi and modern standard Arabic. I was like, I'm more qualified than he is. I'm not slated for any deployment. This might be my last chance to do anything. Like um, I was married at the time. I was like, my marriage is falling apart. Like I, I need this. And she, she went to bat for me. She's probably the only reason I got it. Um, she went to bat for me. She's like, she's more qualified. They were like, all right, you can run and pass a PFT and a CFT. Cause I'd just come off of limited duty having had yeah. hip surgery. Um, and I did, which is great. Um, I'm still surprised I did. Cause I had been, hip surgery sucks. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's how I got on my deployment. And kind of was like, I have to do this. Um, so was that the smartest choice physically? No, but I'm glad I did it. Right. So, Boy, you lived a life in like these four <laughs> years. I feel like we could talk for an, another hour just strictly about like everything that you experienced there. And I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I want to also, one, I want to respect your time because, you know, this is so interesting, but also like, you know, we talked about you becoming an, an aspiring war correspondent. Um, mm -hmm. One question I want to get to before that is you got out after five and a half years, you know, a lot of your family served for over 20 were you okay with leaving at that time? No. Yeah. No. I, when I was on deployment, I put in a reenlistment packet and it came back and it came back when I got home from deployment and I had just gotten word that I had also torn my labrum, tore the labrum in my left hip, not as bad as my right hip. But while I was on deployment, I remember this moment I was walking on ship and I was going through one of the little like porthole things mm -hmm. on the floor um and it's this like sickening like squelch rip feel when you tear it the first time I remember it happening on my left hip and it's like oh no Rachel you did not and then I just I had to ignore it because I was on deployment um and so I didn't say anything because I, I didn't want to leave for myself but also for my team because I was the only linguist on ship at that point yeah. Um, at least for Arabic, we had a Farsi linguist with us, but that's not super helpful with mm -hmm. Arabic. Um, and um, when I got back and when my reenlistment packet got back, um, I had just gotten my MRI results back in my left hip. And I knew, I knew that was it for me. I knew that I would probably get medically separated. Um, and I could have taken the reenlistment spot, but a couple of my friends were waiting on boat spaces to fill up which, or to open up, which is how the, do you know how the Marine Corps does reenlistment? Uh, for my audience, please. Okay, we have something called boat spaces per MOS. Mm -hmm. There's a set number. So not everyone can reenlist. They will only take a certain number and they're called boat spaces. Mm -hmm. um, I, if I had taken that reenlistment packet, um, I would have taken the last boat space for my fiscal year. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing what I knew about my injury at the time and knowing that I had friends that still wanted to reenlist really badly. I was devastated, but I, I, I couldn't do it in good conscience. And so I was like, you know what? This wasn't meant to be. Yeah. I signed no on my reenlistment papers. And I told all my friends, I was really happy to turn it down. Like we all do like, ah, oh, you know, F the Marine Corps that, but I was devastated. Um, I actually tried to go back in last year two years ago they started talking to recruiters and stuff again but <clears throat> it's um you know the VA hasn't fixed my hips or anything they won't they won't replace my hip because I'm only 27 
Um, so I'm in this like awkward, I can walk and I can sort of run sometimes, not really. Um, I'm like living a physically half-life right now. Um, so it just wasn't gonna happen. I had to let that go, which has been really hard, especially watching my sister. She's now been in longer than I have. She's at year six or seven now. Um, it's hard. Do you, do you take pride in the fact that like you, you went for all of it? So like you didn't just kind of go in and like, yeah, I'll do the minimum that's requirements of the Marine Corps. But like, it seems like for those, those years that you were in that you bit off everything you could chew. I'm very comforted by the fact that when I first got hurt at MOS school, um, I had been trying to go the radio recon route. Mm -hmm. I've been preparing for it. And even though that wasn't in the cards for me, I deployed with recon anyways. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very reassured by that fact. And it wasn't because recon just came out to me one day on ship and was like, we need you. Um, it was because I went to them and I basically pimped myself out. I was like, do you guys need a linguist, a translator? Cause like, I'll do that. Yeah. Um, like I, I was on the mess deck just talking to them. Like I was um, serving food. Cause everyone at some point when you're on ship has to do things like clean or serve food. Yeah. And I was serving food to some of the recon like sergeants. And I was just like, just so you guys know, like I am proficient in three different types of Arabic and I would love to work with you guys if you ever need me and they told their captain, Captain Redder, and yeah, that's how I got pulled over. So I still did the things I wanted to just in a different capacity, which is something I am still coming to terms with in every aspect of my life. So. Well, that's something that I've always been intrigued by. You know, the, the last two years working with BBC and talking with veterans is that there's this long, in your, in a lot of people that serve, there's this, there's this desire to serve. Um, and that doesn't leave you when you leave service. So, you know, you, you, you left the Marine Corps, um, but now becoming like an aspiring war correspondent writing for militarytimes.com. Um, you know, is that coming out of that desire to still serve and, and serve in a different capacity? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've had this conversation with my mom a lot, actually, because she has to remind me that there's different ways to serve and to make an impact. It's not just like the military. Um, military Times it came out of, actually out of nowhere. Um, I was supposed to start my graduate program at NYU last fall. I graduated from Penn State in August, and I was supposed to start at NYU two weeks later. But again, take care of your mental health people, because I just wasn't doing well. And I was like, I... I'm not gonna make it if I go to NYU right now. Like I'm not doing okay. I need I need to get some things like under control. And so I applied to an internship with Military Times and I kind of hassled them until they hired me. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a mirror here to being on the deck and saying, hey, <laughs> I could do this. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's getting people to listen to you. Um, mm -hmm. And it, yeah, Military Times is just, I wanted to write for Military Times because I had an in, honestly, because journalism is really, it can be really hard to break into. Yeah. Um, it's very competitive and it doesn't pay well. Uh, <laughs> but I've wanted to be a journalist since I was like 12 years old. So I was like, oh, I'm just gonna go for it. Military Times is my in. Um, and so I got the Military Times gig, I think partly because I'm a decent writer, but mostly because I'm a veteran. Um, and so I know the content that we write. Yeah. And it's been great. Um, I like writing for military times and on military topics because you can, 
you can write about the topics that like as a junior enlisted, for example, never were talked about and needed to be. Um, like right now, uh, I'm working on a piece on the lack of miscarriage policies in the military and how this affects service members, both male and female, because right now commands don't have to give you any sort of bereavement leave or anything. Um, the policy just says that they can, it doesn't say they have to. And so of course you have some commands that will give you all the time in the world that you need to recover. And then you'll have the other commands that are like, we'll see you for a PFT in two days, um, which is horrible. Yeah. So I get to write about that now and I get to help and I get to, I get to still be part of the family. Um, and not just my family, but the military family. Um, the war correspondent thing probably stems more from my childhood and watching my mom and my stepdad deploy to like Afghanistan and everything. Like one time my mom brought me home a burqa, <laughs> <laughs> like the blue ones that they wear in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, she made me walk around the house in it. <laughs> And like, it's a very different childhood than I had. <laughs> yeah, and for a while, we, um, I mean, we still do this actually. Razia's Ray of Hope is this really great organization where they pay for the education of an Afghan girl K through 12. And every year for my birthday and Christmas, we would still get gifts, but our big gift every year would be the paying of an education for an Afghan girl. So obviously all of this, you know, I'm picking my parents up from the airport or you know, I'm, I'm on these long international phone calls with them every other weekend while, you know, I'm going to like soccer games or something. Um, it, it ingrained something in me. And now I'm just like, yeah, I, I just want to be a war correspondent because there's so many stories that need to be told over there. Yeah. Um, and pretty much every conflict zone, whether it's in Africa or the Middle East, um, you know, even South America is falling apart right now. And it may not be like a literal war zone, but it is a conflict zone. I'd be more than happy to go report from there. Um, um, but those stories need to be told and that's what I want to do. That's, that's how I want to serve now, um, so to speak. So. It's something like that I take a lot of pride in with my uh, position here with VBC is getting the stories from the veterans because those stories, yeah. everybody's story needs to be told. Um, and it's certainly important for the civilians to hear these types of stories, especially yours being so unique. Um, if you look through, if you go to Military Times and you look up Rachel's list of articles, there's a lot of different types of ones. And there are the ones that are sort of like, let's report on a death in the military. Yeah. And then there's ones like your trip to Ukraine, which I do want to talk about next. But first I want to ask, you know, that's a very different style of writing to write about uh, a death that happened in the military as opposed to like being, you know, taking yourself over to Ukraine and, and going through Ukraine. and. Yeah. Talent wise, technically wise, you know, how, how do you navigate those types of articles? For the record, I hated writing about my experience in Ukraine because I don't like writing about myself. Um, and when you go to J school, uh, the American style is to not write in first person um, and to not include yourself in the story. So like I wrote when I went to Ukraine, I was trying my hand at freelancing and I wrote an article for New York magazine, which is huge for a starter journalist like I still am pinching myself that that even happened mm -hmm. but at one point the editor was like okay we want you to fill things in then instead say instead of saying like Kathy Stickle said Kathy Stickle is the woman that I profiled for my article um instead of saying like Stickle said uh they wanted me to write things like Stickle told me as we drove past the Polish border which is just something that I'm not 
you know, I don't like writing myself into things and having written like intelligence reports and stuff in the Marine Corps, it's like, you're not a part of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that's technically speaking, that's been very difficult. <laughs> but, you know, writing like death notices, unfortunately, that is essentially just regurgitating press releases. And there's a very particular way that you write it. And all it takes is to just read a couple of previous ones and you know how to write it and you know how to be respectful, um, which is the biggest key when you're doing that. And a lot of it's not stuff that they teach you in school. And a lot of it is. I'm really lucky. Penn State has a great journalism program. 10 out of 10 recommend any veteran goes to Penn State, partly because I worked in the veteran's office there with Tioma and everyone that you interviewed last. Yep. <laughs> um, but also partly because Penn State's just very veteran friendly and it's a wonderful school um, that's opened a million doors for me. So there's my, that's my Penn State plug, but. No, I'm sure they're gonna very much yeah. appreciate that, uh, you know, having been on the program as well. But um, so your time in Ukraine, you, you decide to go over there, you know, you, mm -hmm. your parents, they've been in the military, they understand going into dangerous areas. Obviously Ukraine is, is, a, is a hot zone right now. Yeah. Um, you, you said, hey, I'm heading over there. What was the reaction? They didn't, I don't know, to be honest, I didn't tell my dad. I told my mom, who told my stepdad. Um, and so what happened was it was Chioma's spring break, right? At Penn State, it was her spring break. We went to Greece. Um, instead of coming back to the States, I was like, I feel like I have to do something. So I went to Poland um, because Poland is the easiest way into Ukraine right now. And so I flew over to Poland. I've been there before. I went backpacking after I got out of the Marine Corps for a little bit. So I went to Krakow. I was like, all right. So I started looking for stories while I was in Krakow. And then I found Kathy Stipple. And at that point, I called my mom and I was like, mom, this lady that I'm following for a story, I've pitched it to New York Mag. They've accepted. Um, we're going into Ukraine. And she was like, she's like, well, um, having had the career that I've had, I can't talk you out of it. Um, I'm not gonna try. Uh, she's like, I know you can take care of yourself. I'm super proud of you. And that was about it. That was the conversation we had. Um, she and my stepdad who works for UCOM uh, were like, okay, here's what we do want you to do though. Just be careful. They had me sign up for like the STEP program which is absolutely useless in Ukraine right now because nobody's really at the embassy. They like sort of are, but not really. Um, so they told me that too. They were like, at the time they were actually not in the embassy. They were like, okay, if something happens to you, you're kind of on your own. So I reached out to Thomas Gibbons Neff with the New York Times and Dan Lamoff with Washington Post who are both former Marines and who I've been going to for career advice because Thomas Gibbons Neff is the Kabul bureau chief um, for the New York Times. He has the job that I want. <laughs> um, he's yeah, he's, he's a wonderful person and he's a mentor. So that's great. Um, and I was like, okay, Thomas Kimmins at the time was in uh, Kharkiv. Yeah, he's in Kharkiv at the time. And I was like, all right, I'm going to Ukraine. What do I need to know? And then, you know, he's like, okay, um, I'll let my security team know where you're going to be. I was like, in Odessa, it's Port C uh, Black Seaport. Um, and he was like, don't go farther than Mikolaev without like a flak jacket and stuff. Dan Lamoth put me in touch with the Washington Post reporter in Mikolaev, which is kind of close to um, Odessa. So people were aware of where I was, mm -hmm. but it was also 
it's not something I would recommend doing because I did go in without like a Kevlar and a flak and I was on my own and I don't speak um, in Eastern Ukraine, they speak Russian. Mm -hmm. I don't speak Russian at all. Um, but, you know, I let, I let people know I reached out to as many like experts as I could find. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I'm doing it. They're like, all right, well, if you're that sure, this is, this is all the advice we can offer you. And so then I just kind of went, um, were you, I, I want to use the term chasing a story, but it's like, uh, did you go in with a particular mindset of like, I'm going to yes. go and experience this and report on what I see, or were you like, I want to go to a particular area and report on what's there. I only went into Ukraine with a story. I was not going to just go in blindly um, because I might, there's a difference between brave and bravado. <laughs> so um, I went in with my Kathy Stickle story. Um, it was an American woman. She runs um, evacuation missions into Ukraine by herself. Mm -hmm. She's also an army vet. Um, and I followed her into Ukraine. I went with her on her mission up until Odessa. And she left me there for like a week while she went into or near Kyrgyzstan. She didn't actually make it past the Russian checkpoints. They wouldn't let her. Mm -hmm. um, but I went in chasing that one particular story. And then while I was there, my little like SIGINT Intel brain was like, you should take notes. So I took notes when we went through Ukrainian military checkpoints and when I was in Odessa and I would just look around um, and I would just kind of like jot things down for my personal memory mm -hmm. and for the story, of course, because um, you have to add context. And right. yeah, and then, yeah, I sent I, the article I wrote for Military Times, actually, I partly wrote that as like, it was my editor's idea for me to write that story um, as like comeuppance for the fact that I had written this story for New York Magazine um that technically could have qualified as a military times story um yeah. it's just military times insurance wise wasn't going to cover me um going into ukraine and for that piece i really needed to yeah. um so again it i didn't really breach contract um mm -hmm. but and also it was an interesting piece and nobody else was really like talking about it yet um like going in so that's how that's how that came about. I'm sorry, did I answer everything? <laughs> you did, you did. And, and you know, it's interesting because we've had a civilian uh, who mm -hmm. was embedded with a, with a group of Marines in Afghanistan, um, uh, Wesley, who, you know, he came out, wrote an incredible book and came onto the podcast and was talking about it. We talked to him about like, you're a civilian. Why are you putting yourself into this type of dangerous atmosphere? Is it to, you know, report on what's going on to let civilians know what's going on? You know, it was, it was all of that, but but I think part of the thing that amazed myself and my co-hosts uh, on the scuttlebutt was just the danger that that was involved in that. Um, you know, I think it's a little different if you've been trained as a Marine and you were deployed as a Marine and you've been to sort of like, you know, maybe maybe not the kinetic areas, but definitely hot spots. So you kind of know what to expect. Did you experience uh, any fighting in Ukraine when you were there or any danger or did you feel, you know, where you were at was safe um so we drove in to ukraine from krakow and we drove straight in through underneath uh lviv and straight into central ukraine and then almost like a dead drop south to odessa it took about 12 or 13 hours um 
I think I like our, and of course the entire time you're going through just like series after series of Ukrainian checkpoint. Um, and which kind of lends like a factor of like danger because why would you be going to military checkpoints um, in a direction that nobody else is going in? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if everything's entirely safe. And mm -hmm. then the closer we started getting to Odessa, you started seeing like bombed out gas stations and like buildings that have been destroyed. Um, Was that your first experience with something like that? No, no. And one of the missions I went to, or the immersion I did on deployment, um, we like stopped in the middle of this, like, there was a ghost town essentially at this point. It was just bullet riddled though. Um, mm -hmm. It was in the middle of the desert somewhere. I think, I don't even remember where we were. I think that was Syria. Um, mm -hmm. And that was more what I was expecting from a war zone. Ukraine is very different because for somebody who's grown up in like Germany, for example, it looks like Germany. Okay. Like it's, it's a Western country and it's, it's under attack. It's, it's in the middle of a war and it's wild because in Odessa, like there are kids there that look like Penn state kids, um, not kids, they're young adults. Um, and it's very weird and very chilling in a way that sticks with you more than somewhere that is entirely removed from everything you've ever known. Um, and I think having the childhood that I've had war zones, I'm a bit more nonchalant about them because my family is. Right. And so to me, I view that as like somewhat normal, which is very unhealthy and probably also stem like contributed to my idea that it was a good idea to go into a war zone by myself. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> there's that. Um, it is also different going into Ukraine, not being in the military because when you're in the military, you have the sense of being with all of your friends and yeah. knowing that somebody will pull you out if something happens, or at least they'll try to. Um, and then you've got gear and you've got backup. Being a civilian uh, is different because you don't have that and you're acutely aware of that fact. Mm -hmm. So you have the mindset of a Marine where, uh, okay, I'm going into a war zone, whatever. Like, this is what I'm trying to do. Um, this is fun and like no big deal. And then you also have the factors that make it even more of a big deal mm -hmm. so it's it's hard it's a hard dichotomy we talked a bit at the beginning about bridging military civilian divide is part of your reporting uh, uh you know the idea of, of reaching that goal being able to report on war zones report on what's going on in the military uh for a civilian uh you know for the civilians who might need to know this information or might be interested in this information or need to learn I think my goal of reporting, I actually haven't thought about this before. Um, I think my goal of reporting is more giving a voice to the people that I'm writing about mm -hmm. um, and the impact it can have on them and less about who my audience is, which, you know, thinking about it now from like an academic standpoint or a professional standpoint is probably not the best business practice. You always have to write for your audience. Um, that being said, it's not really part of my goal. Um, I, my like ultimate um, career aspiration or just like role model is Marie Colvin and she was killed by the Syrian government in like 2011 or 2012. Mm -hmm. um, 
but she wrote the stories that people were scared to get to and she gave those people voices and I think that there is nothing more noble than giving somebody a voice um and that's my that's my career goal interesting if if she was writing for their stories what did you end up learning from her beyond just that beyond just getting those stories out uh and looking at her as a mentor what did you kind of learn from her that you want to apply to yourself humanity humanity yeah Mm -hmm. she had a way of writing about people that just you know um we're all very different spread out through even just this country but across the world and oops sorry the email um yeah so we're all it can be hard sometimes to empathize with people that are not like you um obviously and her writing makes it so hard to view somebody as anything other than your sister or your brother or your mother or your child even if you don't have one like that's what her writing does and sure she writes about she wrote about um you know just like conflict zones or whatever but you know this is a woman who has interviewed like Gaddafi and humanized him and like she's managed to humanize some of the world's worst people yeah um and there's nothing better than that for like a journalist um at least that's what I think so that's you know that's what she gave me was or taught me was humanity it's a shame that um you know she was killed uh, and that nobody really you know outside of the war correspondence reporting field nobody ever really talks about her which is weird um like I never heard about her in journalism school I only know who she was because again my family background my mom told me to read her book in extremis um which is about her entire life. Great book. Anyone who is interested in conflict zone should definitely read it. Who, and, and this is something that kind of brought me to you as, as a journalist. Uh, you know, we were talking in, in, within VBC, our staff, just about like, hey, who, you know, who can we reach out to? And my executive director was like, what about this, this one, Rachel? And, um, you know, it made me think like, you know, we looked at Military Times, but there are a lot mm-hmm. of different military, you know, uh, news sources for a civilian to look into. Um, are there reporters from your generation that are reporting in all of these different avenues, um, task and purpose, military times, yeah. uh, you know, all of these different areas that you look up to that you say, if you want to read somebody, read them. Like, you know, they, yeah. these are places that I get my news from. Yeah. Um, I gotta be honest. I was super surprised when you guys reached out to me. I'm very new to the field. I'm only on month nine or 10 at this point, um, of being a journalist and, so I was, I was surprised. I'm flattered, of course, but also surprised. Um, yeah, James Laporta with the AP is a former Marine as well. Um, he has essentially held my hand through every aspect of my career so far. And he's also had a really interesting career. He's an investigative reporter for the AP now, but he's also written for military publications. And he also has like um contributed to shows like this is us when they do portrayals of military members it's fascinating he has a very different side of being a journalist um and then Hilly britsky um i've actually never talked to her i've never met her but she writes for task and purpose and i just think she's a wonderful writer she's a great reporter um and she writes about stories that really matter and she doesn't like flinch away from harder subjects whether that's sexual assault or um 
I'm trying to think what some of the other more recent ones have been. I remember coming across I think her most articles. recent was, yeah, um, I think her most recent was sexual assault and it was from an airman who was speaking out on TikTok. It was great. That was like yesterday. Um, Thomas Givens up, New York Times. I think he's great. He wrote a really wonderful piece this week um, about the like human standpoint of seeing like a corpse in war and kind of having like a really hard time not looking. Um, it was beautiful. He's a, he's a brilliant writer. Um, of course, he's got the New York Times behind him, which is almost every journalist like dream. Yeah. Uh, like I hope I end up there one day. That's my plan for after grad school. I'm hoping I can like kind of weasel my way in. Mm -hmm. um, and I, then- There was a name, uh, Phil Clay, who I've sort of followed a bit. Um, and, and I'm reading his, his more recent book uh, and he was a Marine. Um, I found him very interesting. I don't know if you've read his stuff. I know the name and I know the book, um, but I don't know if I've necessarily read some of his things recently. Mm -hmm. um, being the early bird editor of the Military Times means that I go through a gross amount of news every single morning. And I unfortunately have stopped looking at the reporters' names um, and have just been looking at headlines because it's just incredibly hard to keep track of everything. Um, well, Rachel, I, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Scuttlebutt. Uh, you know, I'm so happy that we were able to connect and, and have you on and, and just hear so much about your story. There's so much here. That's such a rich story to, to understand and, and, you know, what you went through just in, the, in that brief time in the Marine Corps. I'm sure it felt brief to you, but um, it, it's incredible. It's, it's really wonderful. And it's just an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. And again, I'm honored and still kind of surprised that you wanted to speak to me too so well well we're going to be following your career uh i hope you make it new york times that'd be, that'd be fantastic i hope you'll come thank back you. on the scuttlebutt if we're still here <laughs> at that time um but thank you again uh to our audience please like share subscribe ring the bell on youtube if you have responses or questions uh, about this episode you can email me at sean s-h-a-u-n at veteransbreakfastclub.org uh, make sure you follow rachel on militarytimes.com uh for all of her uh, upcoming articles and uh rachel thank you again thank you so much appreciate it Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D, &D, that's dandautosalvage.com. Uh, thank you so much to D&D. &D. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being tobacco-free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, 
and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.